right today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've decided to join us. So if you listen to this show regularly, you know how serious we are about diving headfirst into the questions of inequality and injustice that have been with us since the nation's beginning, but also have come to define so much of our modern divides and debates. This is the narrative of modern American politics, of our social tensions and our cultural strains. But so often when we discuss these things, we do it without reaching back to the beginning to wonder about the roots of these questions that face us as Americans. We're going to change that in a pretty profound way this summer with the 2021 edition of the WDET Book Club. Now, if you listen to the show, you know that each summer we usually choose a novel or a nonfiction treatise to shape our community read and discussion. And we have lots of things going on during the summer on the show and during in-person and other events to kind of shape the discussion about the themes in the book that we've chosen. But this year, instead of choosing a novel or a piece of nonfiction that's a book, we are going to turn to the nation's founding document, the Constitution. So many of the things that we can't agree on find their most basic echoes in the Constitution itself, in the ways it promised equality for some, in the ways it has both delivered on and frustrated the march toward equality for others. We're going to deal with a wide, wide range of subjects during these discussions, from criminal justice to the Second Amendment to religious and gender equality. There is a really, really rich basis for all of the discussions that we are framing. And, of course, we'll leave a lot of the discussion to you, our listeners, as we always do, during conversations here on our show and during Zoom and in-person events that we're going to hold this summer. Our entire station is going to be involved with reading and talking about how the Constitution affects life in America in 2021 through all of our news, music, and conversations. We're going to get started with this book club next week after the July 4th celebration, and it's going to continue into the fall when Constitution Day rolls around in September. Right now, you can join the club and get a free copy of the Constitution by signing up at WDET.org or at our WDET Book Club Facebook page, which I got to say, last year when we were reading Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, I was just overwhelmed by the number of people, the hundreds of people who participated in the WDET Book Club Facebook page that's still going to be with us this summer for this read of the Constitution. And, of course, you can always get more information about the book club at WDET.org slash Constitution. So, again, we're going to get this started next week, and we're going to go through the summer talking about the ways the Constitution informs and affects the narratives and the divides and the debates that we are having right now as Americans. I'm really excited about this opportunity, and I hope you as listeners are as well. Okay, 
As I said, if you listen to this show with any kind of consistency, you know that we are regularly examining issues of social and racial and other kinds of equality. And that's been true for years, and it's become an even more integral part of what we do here on Detroit Today in the last year, when we've seen some of these questions really come to a boiling point uh, and a moment of reckoning kind of emerge where it seems that America is more ready than it normally is to really think about these things and think about change. As cultural paradigms are shifting to finally recognize the systemic oppression and marginalization of people of color in this country, it's really important to give voice to those who are invested in dissecting our nation's past so that it can inform and hopefully improve our collective future. All hour today, we're going to be joined by someone who has dedicated so much of his life to this work, comprehensively interrogating and researching Americans' origins as a slave-owning nation. His newly released book is in many ways a culmination of the many discussions we've had on this program related to this subject. Clint Smith is a poet, he's a staff writer at The Atlantic, and he is author of the new book, How the Word is Passed, a reckoning with the history of slavery across America. Clint Smith, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to be here. So I want to begin with a pretty simple question. What prompted you to write this book now? Has this been something that has been unfolding for a while, a long process for you? Or did the events of last year prompt you to begin the work of writing this book? No, I, I, I wish I could write a book um, like this <laughs> in, that, in, in under a year. That would be, time, that'd yeah. be quite an achievement. Shout out, to the, you know, <laughs> shout out to the writers who can do that. I am not, I'm not that writer. This book uh, began four years ago, actually. Um, so this was in May of 2017 uh, when I was watching several statues uh, in my hometown in New Orleans, uh, several Confederate statues and monuments come down, statues to PGT Beauregard, Jefferson Davis, uh, Robert E. Lee, and this was following uh, two years after the massacre in the Charleston church um, where the nine, uh, nine people were, were killed at the hands of Dylan Roof. And so the country was experiencing, you know, I, I feel like over the past several years we've experienced these different iterations of racial reckoning. Um, and at that moment, because Dylan Roof was so uh, entangled in and adorned with Confederate iconography and because Bree Newsom took down the Confederate flag in front of the South Carolina State House, there was a lot of conversation about taking down Confederate monuments and a lot of different cities and municipalities attempting to do so or thinking about uh, whether or not they should do so. And so it took two years for it to happen in my hometown in New Orleans uh, to take down at least the most prominent of those Confederate statues. And I was, as I was watching these statues come down, I was thinking about what it meant that I grew up in a majority black city in which there were more homages to enslavers than there were to enslaved people. Hmm. And what does it mean that to get to school, I had to go down Robert E. Lee Boulevard. To get to the grocery store, I had to go down, go down Jefferson Davis Parkway. That my middle school was named after the leader of a leader in the Confederacy. That my parents still live on a street named after somebody who owned 150 enslaved people. And what are the implications of this? Because we know that symbols and names and iconography aren't just symbols. They are reflective of the stories that people tell. And those stories shape the narratives that communities carry. And those narratives shape public policy. And public policy shapes the material conditions of people's lives. Which isn't to say that taking down a 60-foot statue of Robert E. Lee is going to immediately erase the racial wealth gap. Of course not. But it is to say that these things are all part of the same sort of ecosystem of ideas and stories 
that shape how we understand what has happened to certain communities and what has to be done to make amends for what has happened to those communities. Uh, and so I started thinking about that in my hometown in New Orleans and, and ultimately wanted to expand it out more broadly to think about how diff- not only how New Orleans was reckoning or failing to reckon with its relationship to the history of slavery, but how different places across the country uh, and even across the ocean were doing so. And, and uh, it's worth pausing here to take note of, I guess, the ubiquity of, of these symbols and icons, but also of the ways in which they kind of melt into the fabric of our country and, and melt into the sort of normalcy, I guess, that we all come to expect and think of as, as Americans. Uh, you know, I grew up in the 1970s and 1980s and can remember really profoundly when uh, the show The Dukes of Hazard was one of the, the most popular shows on, mm. on television. And look, I, I was a kid. I, I loved that show. I wanted, to wa- I wanted to watch it all the time. It didn't occur to me till much later that the symbol of the car that they drive in that in that show was the Confederate flag and the horn on that car when they would uh, when they would press it would play Dixie. Mm. Uh, I mean, these are deeply meaningful symbols in the nation's history, and yet they were just part of a popular television show that I don't remember a lot of people when that was on the air, even raising that as an issue, even saying, wait, what does this say about our country? What does this say about us that these are, these are just symbols and that we don't attach any meaning to them in the context of something uh, as, a, as a popular television show? Th- th- that is a huge part of American history, and it's a huge part of the reason that it's so difficult now, I think, to get some people to focus on the damage that these icons and symbols do, that, that they, the meaning they have uh, is violent uh, mm-hmm. against people of color, is uh, hearkening to violence against African-Americans in, in particular, um, and, and that we've got we've to pay more attention. We've got to be more astute about what we do and what it means. Yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, and I think part of the the reason that you have a Dukes of Hazard with a Confederate flag on the side and playing Dixie when you, you honk the horn is a microcosm for the efficacy of, of a centuries-long ideological project, uh, you know, known as the Lost Cause, which, which is an intentional attempt and sometimes a state-sanctioned attempt uh, after the end of the Civil War in order to obfuscate and and uh, misrepresent what the Civil War was fought over and and the sort of nature of what American society was like uh, through the 17th and uh, 18th and 19th century. Um, you know, so the, the, the sort of tenets of the lost cause are this idea that um, the Civil War was not fought over slavery. It was fought over states' rights. It was the war of northern aggression um, that if, uh, you know, as some of the people I interviewed in my book, when I went to uh, a Confederate cemetery and they were members of the Sons of Confederate Veterans, they said if, if the northern states in the Union had just stayed where they are, stayed, stayed where they were, nothing would have happened. And I was like, well, nothing would have happened to who? I mean, something surely would have happened, uh, continued to happen to the four million enslaved black people uh, who lived under intergenerational chattel bondage. Uh, but 
again, what the Lost Cause is attempting to do is say that the Civil War wasn't about slavery and that even if, uh, and, and besides the point, slavery wasn't even that bad, that it was a benevolent institution. As the historian Ulrich B. Phillips, who was one of the sort of large, um, most significant propagators of this ideology uh, in the early 20th century, he talked about plantations as uh, civilizing institutions that rescued black people from the savagery of Africa. Mm. Uh, a John C. Calhoun, for late senator from South Carolina, the sort of infamous senator from South Carolina, who was also at one point our vice president, talked about slavery as a positive good that impacted both black and, you know, positively impacted black and white people alike. Um, and so after, what happens is after the war, uh, there is an effort to suggest that slavery wasn't that bad, it wasn't even the reason the Civil War was fought, and and as a result, make symbols like the Confederate flag symbols of uh, quote-unquote heritage or benign symbols that aren't actually reflective of the violence that they represented because they were raised by a territory, a treasonous territory, that was predicated on maintaining and expanding the institution of slavery. And the insidiousness of white supremacy is that it attempts to turn empirical statements into ideological ones, right? And so when I say that the Confederacy was a treasonous territory that seceded from the Union and raised an army to perpetuate the institution of intergenerational chattel bondage, in some contexts and in some classrooms, that would be perceived as an ideological statement or a statement that is reflective of my political beliefs rather than one that's actually grounded in historical evidence and primary source documents. All you have to do is look at the declarations of Confederate secession where a state like Mississippi says that our interests are thoroughly, our position is thoroughly aligned with the institution of slavery, the greatest material interest in the world. Right? Mm -hmm. So they're not unclear about why they seceded, but the lost cause is almost this sort of Orwellian gaslighting project where it attempts to tell you that the things that you are seeing are not actually reflective of the reality in front of you. And, and we've seen a sort of 21st century iteration of that um, in, in many ways over the past five years. Hmm. Uh, I'm speaking with Clint Smith. He is a poet and a staff writer at The Atlantic, and he's author of a new book called How the Word is Passed, a reckoning with the history of slavery across America. Uh, we're talking about the ways in which uh, the nation's uh, largest original sin, or one of the largest original sins of our nation, uh, has made its mark on American life throughout the history of America, and how right now we live with uh, those marks, with those symbols, with those icons, and sometimes don't even think about their importance, about the meaning that they have uh, about our history. We'd love if you want to join the conversation, uh, call and tell us if you feel like we're doing enough as a country and as a society to reckon with racism in our history of slavery in the United States. What kind of things do you think need to happen to make sure that we're recognizing and addressing our past and our present? And what do you think we need to do to create a future where equality is more the norm and that this these, uh, these symbols of inequality, these celebrations of inequality are not all around us all the time. As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll try to include you in the conversation that way. Uh, also, and we are always... Uh, very good on this program about being very open about what people want to discuss. If you think that there's too much emphasis on 
history and the history of racism. If you think that we are maybe fanning the flames of racism by talking about it as much as we do, I'd love to hear from you as well. Call and explain why you think that's so and what you believe we ought to be doing instead. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number. 313-577-1019. Clint, I want to talk about a a part of your book where you follow follow a former prisoner turned tour guide uh, (laughs) of the 18,000-acre Angola prison complex, which is the largest maximum security prison here in the United States. And it is a former plantation. Uh, I've been to Angola. Uh, I I, I don't see how anyone could go there and not feel the really strong echoes of slave history there. Mm -hmm. But again, I think it's a place that for most people, doesn't necessarily symbolize that past. So can you talk about the parallels between the sort of historic and voluntary servitude of enslaved people and the mass incarceration of black men that you can see on display at places like Angola now? Yeah, you know, I could have written an entire book just about Angola and my experience at Angola. It is, uh, I've worked in prisons and jails for the past uh, seven years as a teacher, um, but uh, nothing really could prepare me for uh, the experience, how, how haunting and unsettling Angola was. So, so to sort of build on the context you provided, like you said, Angola is the largest maximum security prison in the country. It is 18,000 acres wide, bigger than the island of Manhattan. It is a place where 75% of the people held there are black men. Over 70% of them are serving life sentences. And as you said, it is built on a former plantation. And what I tell folks is that if you were to go to Germany and you had the largest maximum security prison in Germany and it was built on top of a former concentration camp in which the people held there were disproportionately Jewish, that place would rightfully be a global emblem of anti-Semitism. It would be abhorrent. It would Mm. be disgusting. We would never allow a place like that to exist because it would so clearly run counter to all of our moral and ethical sensibilities. And yet here in the United States, we have the largest maximum security prison in the country in which the vast majority of people are black men serving life sentences who work in fields for virtually no pay, many of whom were sentenced uh, as children, many of whom were sentenced by non-unanimous juries, which has since been rendered unconstitutional by the Supreme Court of the United States, who work in these fields of what was once a plantation while someone watches over them on horseback with a gun over their shoulder. And so part of what I'm thinking about when I go to a place like Angola is what are the ways that a history of uh, racism, white supremacy, both enact physical violence against people's bodies, but also collectively numb us Mm. as a society to certain types of violences that in another global context would be so clearly unacceptable? What is it that allows us to allow that place to exist at all, much less on that land in that way? And what does it mean that that place not only is not interested in excavating or having an honest conversation about its relationship to this to this path that is so clearly uh, emblazoned on the landscape, but that that place has a gift shop. And that in the gift shop, they sell shot glasses and coffee mugs and sweatshirts and baseball caps and uh, stuffed animals dressed wearing prison uh, prison clothes. And, and that on one of the coffee mugs that I saw, it had the silhouette of a watchtower. And above and below the watchtower, it said, Angola a gated community, as if to, to make a mockery of or belittle the actual experiences of the thousands of people who are incarcerated there, the thousands of people who will die there. And so Angola, you know, the, 
what is so clear is that Angola is at part the landscape and topography are so as you said, sort of carry the echoes of enslavement in such a profound way that the idea that that place is not engaging in any sort of critical uh, interrogation Mm -hmm. or self-reflection about the way that that history would inform how it would inform its present, because it so clearly does, is, is, uh, it's abhorrent and it's it's shocking. And I want to be clear, that's not to say at prison, some people will say prison is the new slavery or mass incarceration is the new slavery. That is not language I would use because I think that mass incarceration and chattel slavery are phenomenologically distinct things. And, and we don't have to conflate them to name the cruelty and horrors of each, each one respectively. Like prison, chattel slavery is a unique phenomenon because your children were born into bondage simply by nature of being your children which is, you know, that you are inherently born into a caste system in which you are someone's human property. Mm. That is very distinct from mass incarceration. Like, clearly, there, you know, the sociologists have outlined how there's a relationship between uh, what the likelihood of your parents being incarcerated and their children being incarcerated, and there is a relationship there. But that is wholly different than the idea that you are, your child, because you are incarcerated, is is inherently born into an incarcerated status. So I think that distinction in and of itself means that we should not conflate the two. But what we can certainly do, as the scholar Sadia Hartman talks about, is talk about the way that the afterlife of slavery has shaped what our contemporary carceral state looks like. Because, uh, like you said, all you have to do is go to Angola and see it for yourself. You see black men picking crops in Mm -hmm. fields. Mm-hmm. For, you know, as Norris Henderson, the man I went there who served almost 30 years in Angola, he talked about how he picked cotton in these fields when he was there for seven cents an hour. And he looked at his hands and he looked at the calluses on his hands and he had a moment where he was like, Clint, like I might have been picking cotton in the same fields my ancestors might have been picking cotton. And like you can't. And he said it's hard to express what that does to somebody's spirit, what that does to their sense of of who they are in the world. Um, so So, yeah, Angola was a... Uh, was an experience. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Clint Smith, and we will get to your calls and your social media comments. Carter Bay in Detroit, Dennis in Dearborn, Tim in Detroit, you'll be up first. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter and put comments there. We'll try to include you that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always... Glad you've joined us. My guest is Clint Smith. He's a poet and staff writer at The Atlantic and the author of a new book called How the Word is Passed, A Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America. We're talking about the ways in which this original sin of America's is all around us all the time in icons, in symbols, in narratives and divides and discussions that we have here uh, in our country in 2021. And we're talking about the ways in which 
we might be able to confront those symbols and icons, rethink them, put them into context in a way that shapes a future that is way more balanced uh, from an equity standpoint. Uh, we want to hear from you during the conversation and hear what you think about the ways that we're starting to reckon with racism and our history of slavery here in the United States. Uh, what are the things that you think we need to do to do that? And what kinds of things need to happen to make sure that we are casting forward in a better way, that we are creating an America that is more aware of its past uh, and more distant from its past when it comes to slavery and inequality. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Uh, we're going to start today with Carter Bay here in Detroit. Carter Bay, welcome to the show. Hello. Hey. Uh, first off, we need to understand that no one is black and white, but at the same time, we need to know that we have to have a universal basic income, a trust-backed universal basic income that goes to the so-called Negro, black, and colored people first, and it should be distributed by the black-owned banks and credit unions here to establish the new uh, – or revived uh, Black Wall Street, you know, possibly through the Dream Exchange. Hmm. Uh, and and Carter Bay, that's a, I mean, it's a very focused kind of proposal. It's very economic-minded. Do you think that makes up for or erases uh, some of the other yeah, issues yeah, that we have? Yeah, it will start because uh, it's, slavery is economic. That was why the slave was created in the first place, as James... Baldwin posed the question, why was the slave created? It was created for economic reasons. You know what I mean? And the other stuff that goes along with that, you know, is like some Hellenistic, uh, all that uh, white, you know, supremacy and stuff like that. And, you know, uh, identifying that. And that is why we are continuing this cycle, because People are accepting those terms and identifying those terms with those terms, and white supremacists are using those terms. Mm -hmm. uh, Carter Bay, I really appreciate the call and the thoughts there. Um, Clint Smith, respond to, to what he's talking about here and talk about the importance of economic and economic theory as uh, both progenitor of the problems that we have and maybe a as solution. Yeah, I mean, I think what's absolutely true is uh, slavery was, you know, as Carter said, uh, certainly um, entangled deeply and fundamentally in, in capitalism and economics. I mean, I think about how David Blight, the historian at Yale University, talks about that in 1860, the four million enslaved black people were worth more than every bank, factory, and railroad combined, worth more than all the manufacturing that this country had in 1860 were the bodies of enslaved people. Hmm. And so I think that that specificity um, in in terms of understanding the economics of the institution and how the United States' role as a global economic superpower today is inextricably linked to the fact that it uh, used enslaved labor over the course of over 250 years uh, is, is deeply important to recognize. And that 
you know, also it had the compounding intergenerational effect of preventing black people from accumulating any sort of meaningful wealth, even after the end of the Civil War, right? Like it wasn't just slavery. I think many people know this, but like, uh, you know, for example, in the Freedmen's Bank, um, in uh, at the end of the Civil War, black people throughout the South were told to give their money to the Freedmen's Bank, um, the Freedmen's Savings Bank, and that money would accrue interest and, um, you know, that they would be able to pass the, the sort of um, compounded interest uh, that, you know, is being added to their savings and pass it on to their uh, their loved ones and, and uh, their children and their children's children. Uh, and what happened is that nine years after the end of the Civil War, the Freedman Savings Bank collapsed because of the mismanagement of the uh, white uh, people who were uh, were handling it. And what happened is that as when it collapsed, over half of the wealth of black America disappeared overnight. And this is in eight, nine years after the war, so this is 1874, I believe. And like half of the wealth of people who had been enslaved less than a decade ago disappeared overnight, right? And so we can't hmm. overstate the extent to which even after slavery, through Reconstruction, through Jim Crow, through the 20th century, the, that black people have been prevented from having access to, uh, either having access to the resources that create intergenerational wealth and opportunity, or have literally and intentionally had those things stripped and taken away from them um, on, on a consistent state-sanctioned basis. Uh, and, and I think that it's really important to recognize. And with regard to the policy, you know, the idea of universal basic income, I, I absolutely think that there should be a universal basic income. Um, I'm not an economist, so I can't speak specifically to the nature of how it should be doled out. But what I think when we think of repair, part of what's important to keep in mind is that we are repairing both the material uh, providing material resources to people who have been intergenerationally harmed, but also that we are repairing a sort of public consciousness and repairing uh, the, the, the holes in our public memory in which people fail to understand why such an intervention, why such an economic intervention would be necessary in the first place. Because if you give, if you proceed with an economic intervention and the vast majority of the American public don't understand the central tenets of why such an intervention is necessary and don't understand the nature of what this country has actually done to millions of people um, and, mil and different groups of people, then you create a climate in which, you know, even even clearly there this exists today, but even more so there's a, a, a climate of resentment. And people think that uh, certain groups of people are being given handouts um, that they don't deserve um, and that are somehow, uh, you know, this sort of reverse racism or, you know, uh, state-sanctioned affirmative action, when it is actually just accounting for what has been done to so many people. And this is why, broadly, this, the study of history is so important, is so that we all operate with the same understanding of who this country has been and what it, what it has done and failed to do for so many people. Mm -hmm. uh, again, thanks so much for the call uh, and the comments, Carter Bay. Uh, let's go to Tim in Detroit. Tim, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. Uh Listen, uh, I'm a, um, a minor historian, I guess, and I'm in the news business. And I pay attention to news and history. But as things are coming out, uh, um, certainly uh, Tulsa is just one. But the, the level of mistreatment that uh, 
white, what the you know, white America, the government did to its African American citizens, man, is, is really quite unimaginable. I mean, every day, every week, I I I read something to hear something that I, I just I, even with all the information that I know, it's just unbelievable to hear what they've done, and just sometimes just for the hell of it. And so when we talk about you know reckoning, America. Um, they, we have so much to pay for because of what, what we've done. And, and um, a, a reckoning is definitely here. Uh, it's coming now. When you look at how America is being really punished now with droughts, you know, we have the highest, we probably have the highest, no, we don't probably, we have the highest COVID rate. It's ten, almost 10 times worse than India. We have these drug problems. We have all these other problems. And that's, we're, we're paying for these sins. And the black folks are in this system. We, we're part of it, too. We're going to pay because it, it's, um, it can be depressing. I'm telling you, man. You, you look at our history, and you actually learn what these people have done. I, I can understand why they don't want a CRT to be taught. But as far as reparations, I'm going to say that America's level of power and wealth is directly proportional to what they took from black people. So they have to pay us in cash. Wow. And America's going to catch hell until then. <laughs> have Tim, a good day, man. Uh, Tim, I appreciate the call and, and the thoughts. Uh, again, Clint, this idea of how to repair, how to remunerate for the things that have been done to, to African-Americans uh, in, in this country. You know, it is not an easy thing to think through, even once you decide that, that you want to do it. But getting to the space where people agree that it should be done is another big part of the problem. And I think that's what, uh, that what, that's what Tim is, is referencing there. And he's saying that uh, we're paying for not, for not getting to that point. Yeah, and, and again, there's just there's so many examples to Tim's point uh, of the ways that this has happened, and and similar to Tim, I feel like I'm learning all the time. You know, I'm somebody who's, uh, you know, I, I got a PhD studying education inequality and race. I got uh, I'm a you know staff writer at the Atlantic who covers this. I spent four or five years writing a book on the history of slavery, and every day, I feel like I'm learning new ways that the uh, that black people were were prevented from um, having any sort of access to the the levers of upward mobility. I mean, I think all the time about when I first read a book by a historian, Ara Katz Nelson, who's a political scientist sure. and historian at um, Columbia University, and he has a book called Fear Itself, which is about the New Deal. And, you know, I was taught the New Deal was the great catalyst of intergenerational wealth. It lifted millions of poverty, people out of poverty into the middle class, gave them access to homes and jobs and you know, help them matriculate and graduate uh, college and, you know, suburban homes, two-car garages and the like. What I never learned and what I didn't learn until, you know, my adulthood and when I read Kath Nelson's book is the way that the New Deal was structured with the specific intention of preventing black people from having access to its benefits. So black people, specifically black people in the South, where the majority of black people were in the early 20th century, didn't have access to Social Security, minimum wage protection, housing mortgages, health care, the GI Bill, all of the things that were the the great catalyst, again, of intergenerational wealth over the course of a century for millions of people. And so if you give those resources to one group of people and very intentionally don't give them to another group of people, people shouldn't act surprised generations later when their disparate outcomes 
along the lines that these resources were allotted. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and to the point, you know, people have been alluding to this sort of critical race theory thing. Part of what critical race theory does is it is not, as some would attempt to misrepresent it, teaching white people that they're racist or teaching people how racist they are. It, It is about understanding the way that race and racism have shaped how public policy and legal decisions and educational decisions in this country have been made. And so if if we think about the New Deal, looking at it through the the prism of critical race theory, we recognize that those resources weren't allotted, weren't not allotted to black people because they said in the legislation, don't give that, don't give Social Security to black people. They made it so that uh, local states had jurisdiction over how it was allotted. And those states specifically in the South said, we're not going to allow people who are domestic workers and farm workers to have access to a lot of these pieces of um, a lot of these programs, knowing full well that 75 percent of uh, farm workers and domestic workers in the South were black. Right. So you don't have to say we're not going to give it to black people if you specifically target the jobs that black people disproportionately occupy. And so in all, all critical race theory is doing is asking us to take a holistic, honest view of this history and to understand how those decisions have shaped what our contemporary landscape of inequality looks like. And, and, and that shouldn't, it shouldn't be uh, too much to ask, to ask people to speak and think honestly and fully about all this country has done, both the mm. good things that it has done and the terrible things that it has done. Mm. Like that is the story of America. It's a place that has provided opportunity for millions of people in ways that their ancestors could have never imagined. And has also created that opportunity at the direct expense of millions and millions of other people. Mm. And we have to hold both of those realities at once. Okay, we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue talking with Clint Smith about his new book and about reckoning with our history of slavery and racism in America. We'll also continue to hear from you on social media and on the phones. Dan in the Cass Quarter, Dennis in Dearborn, Brother Ray in Midtown, you are all still in the queue. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. is Clint Smith. He's a poet and staff writer at The Atlantic, and he's author of the new book, How the Word is Passed, A Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America. We're talking about the ways in which slavery, one of this country's great original sins, has made its mark on life in this country since then and continues to make its mark on life in this country today, sometimes in very overt ways and very purposeful ways, sometimes in very subtle ways, just through the iconography and symbols that surround us. Uh, We're talking about how we reckon with that history and how we reckon with the future, right? What do we do now to make sure that that past doesn't cast life in America 
in 2050 or 2070 the way it does in 2021. want to hear from you, uh, the listeners, about your ideas there as well. Uh, are we doing enough as a country and as a society to reckon with racism in our history of slavery? What kinds of things do you think need to happen to make sure that we are casting a better future than the one uh, that uh, was cast for us. Uh, as always, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter and put comments there, and uh, we'll try to include you in the show that way. Let's go to Dennis in Dearborn. Dennis, what's on your mind? Hi, good day, good day. I got to tell you, as a retiree, my expenditures are to WDTE and to Atlanta. I feel like I'm getting my money's worth right now. <laughs> That's very um, sweet. Okay, uh, Stephen, when I've called in before, I've taken the global pictures and questions that you've done, and I brought it back to the dilemmas of my family. You know, I, I can't solve the nation's problems, and I can't even have a conversation. And I believe conversations are, are the things that will bring out facts, but the disrespect. If I had a magic wand, I'd say, everybody, please take the master class of Neil deGrasse Tyson. Mm. Learn how you think, how you get the facts, how you pull things together. Um, I feel like in my family, I'm, I'm playing pinochle, and, and some members of my family are playing crazy eights, and we're trying to play a card game together with those two things coming together. And, and it, I, it goes nowhere. The conversation seems to go nowhere. And it's, it's very frustrating to me. But uh, uh, my sister is a scientist, and she comes up with facts, and she doesn't like soft science. So I'm a, I'm a sociologist or historian, so I, I work with soft facts. But uh, not that, they're not, that they're, they're not truthful. They're very truthful. But, but uh, the dilemma of what are the facts? What are we working with? How can we have a conversation to make it uh, give us the cards to work with so that we can advance our country? Thank you. Hmm. Dennis, I, I really appreciate the call and the really thoughtful comments. Um, Clint Smith, I want you to address what Dennis is talking about, but it, but it also reminds me in broader terms of the burden that this history and this legacy puts on non-African Americans, I mean, people who... Uh, who aren't direct victims of what we're talking about, but but whose histories play a role and whose families, uh, in, in, in Dennis's case, like he said, uh, ha have really wide-ranging views about, uh, about what to do on, on these things. It's a part of the conversation we haven't really gotten to yet. Yeah, it, and it's a, it's a difficult one. You know, I think... One of the places that I went in the book was um, the Blandford Cemetery, which is one of the largest Confederate cemeteries in the country. Uh, and I spent the day with the Sons of Confederate Veterans for their Memorial Day celebration. Um, so uh, as black men, you can imagine that I was, uh, I was a conspicuous presence at such an event. Um, and what was so fascinating to me, I think this speaks uh, broadly to, to his point, is the way that for so many people I met there, uh, history is not about primary source documents. It is not about empirical evidence. It is not about fact, even. Um, for so many people in this country, history is reflective of a story that people have been told. And it is a story that they tell. It is an heirloom that is passed down across generations. I think of a guy I met there named Jeff who talked about how you know his grandfather used to 
bring him out to the cemetery and tell him all the all these stories about the people who were buried there and they would sing song they would sing Dixie and they would sing all these songs that are sort of homages to uh you know his great great grandfathers and the people uh buried in that land and and now Jeff comes and he brings his granddaughters to that same land he tells them the same stories that his grandfather told him even though these stories are grounded in a lie even though these stories are are are, are factually false so many of them um but the but the issue is that jeff's sense of who he is in the world is so emotionally entangled in mm-hmm. and so deeply invested in his the stories that he was told by people like his grandfather uh, the who his grandfather was, right? And so, if somebody ask him, ask you, it is not. If somebody says you, the things that your grandfather told you were wrong, um, the things that your grandfather told you were a lie. You are not only for Jeff, in his mind, making it. You are you are questioning not only the thing that he was told, but like the sort of thing that grounds him and his identity as a person, right? Is the, it is both the nostalgia and his love for his grandfather that is being implicated and his lineage that is being implicated, his family, his community. And so when so much of your sense of self is tethered to myths about this country, it can be very difficult for people to let go of those myths because then they don't only feel untethered from a history they thought they knew, they feel untethered from themselves, they feel untethered from who they thought they were because they are situating themselves in a history that you are telling them is not true and that is false and that is misrepresented. And so I think we can at once name that these things can be difficult for people to come to terms with uh, and sometimes are existential or feel existential. But that doesn't mean that a different choice can't be made, right? Well, what would it mean if Jeff, instead of coming to this Confederate cemetery, with his granddaughters and perpetuating these lies, came and said, these are your ancestors, these are your great-great-grandparents, and they are a part of you, they are a part of our family, but they fought a war for a terrible, terrible thing. And you do not have to be defined by the things that your family did or the decisions that they made. And you can still love your family, you can be still firmly grounded in yourself, but you don't have to take on that burden uh, to sort of, excuse what they did and there are many people who do that all one of the people i went to blanford with was my friend william who was experiencing his own sort of reckoning with realizing that he had ancestors who fought for the confederacy and owned enslaved people and and so it is you can make a different choice about how you consider your past and your genealogy and your lineage and what it means for you um but for many people that's a that's a really hard thing to do, but that doesn't mean that just because something is hard doesn't mean it shouldn't be done. That's a great, that's a great way to think about that. Uh, thank you so much, Dennis, again, for the call, uh, and the thoughts. Let's go to Dan in the cast corridor. Dan, what's on your mind? Good morning. I look forward to uh, reading the book. Um, so let me try and make a poor attempt at a Marxist intervention in this debate. Um, So the geographical expansion of a non-capitalist form of social labor, slavery, it was an obstacle to the future expansion of vibrant capitalism. Capitalist manufacturers organized in the Republican Party took the lead in organizing their political and military struggle to remove the impediment posed by slavery to the uh, expansion of capitalist social property relations. 
um, because plantation slavery prevented technical innovation. It blocked the creation of a home market for industry. So that's my assertion. My question for the author would be, was slavery capitalist? Uh, was the Civil War about race or about slavery as an obstacle to the expansion of a northern capitalist hmm. economic system? And do you think, cl- looking back, class or race is more important, or do they both need to be thought about? Thank you. Yeah, Dan, really wonderful questions, not, not easy questions. <laughs> so, so uh, Glenn Smith, uh, have at it, but, but let's say up front that these are very deep questions about the nature of our country and ourselves, and I'm I'm not expecting you to in the in the two minutes we have left uh, yeah. uh, solve the problems that Dan has laid out in front of us. But, yeah, but respond is, uh, to what he's saying. Dan sounds like a question on my my comprehensive exams in graduate school. <laughs> um, you know, I in the time we have left, I can say you know to the to the last point, um, they are absolutely deeply entangled, class and race. I mean, you can't understand the nature of how class has manifested itself manifested itself in this country without understanding its entanglement to race. I mean, I think that's why folks like uh, Cedric Robinson, the late scholar, um, you know, coined this idea of, of racial capitalism, um, thinking about both in throughout our history and in our contemporary society, the way both of those realities engage with one another and, and are in conversation with one another and shape one another in in really profound ways. And so, you know, what, right now there's an interesting debate going on between historians uh, between social historians and economic historians and, and economists that it's, are trying to sort of calibrate um, the sp- specific economic impact that slavery had on this country. Um, and there's a lot of debate about how one, how one calculates that. I mean, I think what, what I can speak to and what is absolutely true is that slavery was a system that attempted to, was, was a capitalistic system in which that used racial oppression and torture in order to attempt to generate as much capital as possible, right? So, like, we don't often refer to slave plantations as torture sites, but but that's what they were. And the historian at Cornell University, Edward Baptist, who wrote an incredible book, The, the Half Has Never Been Told, talks about how, like, slave plantations were sites of torture in which this enslavers were attempting to figure out different mechanisms by which to create incentives for, uh, to, to make the most, uh, create the most labor and profit um, as possible. And so all of these things are entangled with one another in, in really profound ways. Yeah, yeah. Uh, great effort there, Clint, at, at compressing that into two minutes. Uh, you did a wonderful job. Uh, but uh, as always, uh, thank you so much for joining us here on Detroit Today and congratulations on your book. Thank you so much. Okay, that is going to do it for us today. I will be back tomorrow, and I hope you will too. We're going to talk about the ways we're failing to provide adequate childcare in Michigan and across the country.